Welcome back to GI Pearls, the gastroenterology and hepatology literature review podcast where I read the journals so you don't have to. This is episode 37 for the month of December of 2019. Thanks again for your tweets, emails, and words of encouragement. Thanks for those of you who sent in papers for me to read. And if you have a paper that you think I should read, send it to info at gipearls.com or direct message me on Twitter at gi underscore pearls. All right, let's crack open those journals. So I do love reading meta-analyses. Yes, well, not really. So uh, before you start working on your next great meta-analysis, I suggest you ask yourself, do we really need another one? And if the answer is yes, then please read this next paper before and reconsider. JAMA Internal Medicine published a paper by Joshua Niferatus from Cleveland Clinic who looked at the publication trends of systematic reviews when compared to randomized clinical trials. And no surprise, the rate at which the number of meta-analysis, which I didn't know but has a new acronym, SIRMAS, S-R-M-A-S, Systematic Reviews Meta-Analyses, SIRMA. So anyway, so the rate of SIRMAS growth is much greater than other publications, notably when you compare them to randomized clinical trials. How fast are these meta-analyses growing? About 2,700% increase in the last 22 years. And for some reason, gastroenterology is one of the worst offenders, only behind Hemonc in terms of rates of growth. So now nearly one review is published for every new randomized clinical trial. Why is this bothersome to everyone? Well, mostly me. One analysis suggests that only 3% of these CIRMAS, remember systematic review and meta-analyses, only 3% of these are actually methodologically sound, non-redundant, and clinically useful. So if you're thinking of what your next project should be, if you want to change the way gastroenterology is moving forward, another meta-analysis is probably not the way to do it. The hygiene hypothesis keeps haunting the GI world. Most notably, lots of people are worried about how we are changing humans by getting rid of H. pylori, and are we getting other diseases in return? So this is a meta-analysis of all the data looking at comparative studies to look at association between H. pylori exposure and the risk of eosinophilic esophagitis. 11 observational studies were looked at, and it looks like that your odds of EOE go down by 37% if you've been exposed to H. pylori. So all the studies together looked at over 300,000 people who tested positive for H. pylori and then looked at EOE, yay or nay. So it looked like each study was not significant by itself, but the odds ratio always favored exposure to H. pylori as being protective. Doesn't matter where you lived or whether you were a kid or an adult. Anyway, interesting. And another H. pylori association paper that I saw was this time looking at the incidence of autoimmune diseases, including inflammatory bowel disease, looking at the data from Taiwan. And there was an association between treatment of H. pylori and increased risk of IBD. But then again, they found a similar link with antibiotic treatments of urinary tract infections. So it may be not the H. pylori, but the exposure to antibiotics that does it, probably more so than the H. pylori itself. So who knows? If you're in a community practice like me, you inevitably will collect a handful of patients with primary sclerosing cholangitis. It's a relatively rare disease, and unfortunately, sometimes the first time you diagnose it, it's in the context of actually diagnosing patients with cholangiocarcinoma. So this next practice update from AGA lists eight best practice recommendations for looking for cancer in patients with PSC. Let's go over them. 
1. Screen for cholangiocarcinoma and gallbladder cancer in all adult patients with PSC. 2. Use ultrasound, CT, or MRI with or without CA199 every 6 to 12 months. 3. Don't use ERCP with brush cytology routinely to survey for cholangiocarcinoma. 4. It's okay to do ERCPs if you feel there's cholangiocarcinoma there already, not just surveillance. Say if the symptoms get worse, you see a dominant stricture or numbers go sky high. 5. FNA, when considered, should be used with caution, especially if the patient is a liver transplant candidate in the future because you don't want to see the tumor. 6. Don't do any surveillance in patients with small duct PSC who are younger than 20 years. 7. When should you remove the gallbladder? AGA tells you to look at the size and growth of any polyps in the gallbladder, and if the polyps are larger than 8 millimeters, that's when you remove it. By the way, ASLD says remove the gallbladder no matter what the size the polyp is. And this is the last one. Don't forget about surveillance for HCC in patients with PSC. Do ultrasound, CT, or MRI with or without AFP every six months. Also, though not part of this guideline, but don't forget the association with ulcerative colitis. And if you have a patient with PSC who is yet to have a colonoscopy, talk to them about doing one. That's all. On this podcast, I like to bring up one or two studies that are somewhat controversial, and I think this is the one. Screening for colorectal cancer in asymptomatic average risk adults, ACP guideline. This was just published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, and this is in November issue of this year, so it is definitely worth talking about. Two things need to be mentioned here before we talk about the guidance statements. Firstly, it is for asymptomatic average risk adults. And if you're worried about switching to this guideline as a primary care doc or even a GI doc who's heading towards a more conservative route, there's a whole page of talking points you can use with your patients in the journal and online at ACP website. So here come the guidance statements. 1. Screen all adults for colorectal cancer between the ages of 50 and 75. Average risk once again. 2. This is a long one. Discuss benefits, harms, availability, and frequency, and take patient preference into account. And here are your choices. Fit testing or high-sensitivity FOBT every two years. Colonoscopy every 10 years. Or flex-sig every 10 years plus fit testing every two years. That's it. Those are the only choices. Nice and simple. And now guidance statement three. Stop screening average risk patients when they're older than 75 or life expectancy is less than 10 years. How about that? That's it. Well, there's nothing here for those who are not average risk. And the truth is most docs struggle with the definition of what the higher risk actually is. Is grandma with colon cancer enough? How about two grandmas? How about mother who had a small adenoma removed? Large adenoma? How often do these people should be screened? In some cases, like case of the grandma, the answer is more obvious. But in others, there's more debate and, you know, sometimes people get their arms twisted into thinking they have family history when they really isn't. Now, let's have a few words about what is not in these guidelines. One, this one's kind of easy, no CT colonography. I mean, I'm not a radiologist, but I swear, I feel like nobody's doing this test. So that's easy. How about Cologuard? It's not in the guidelines. And I say good riddance. It is a confusing and weird little test that I never liked. And every three years seems a little odd. And the biggest, most important difference in the guideline is that most societies recommend fit or guaiac testing yearly, and ACP wants it every two years. Don't forget that this year the Europeans 
did the same thing and recommended fit testing every two years, so it would be hard to argue against this on a global sense. So send me your thoughts and comments about this new guideline to info at gipearls.com or hit me up on Twitter at gi underscore pearls. Once we dealt with the average risk patients, how about patients who ended up with some adenomas in the past? Well, if they're small, several studies, including the National Polyp Study, changed our practice and currently waiting at least five years, if not 10, is recommended. And if you have three or more adenomas, you come back in three years. Well, the technology is improving and we're finding more and more smaller adenomas. So the number of patients with one or two small adenomas is growing as people improve their ADRs. So should we extend the interval surveillance to 10 years or is that a push? This next paper published in the annals, same issue as the ACP guidelines, looks at this very question. And it was a modeling study looking at high intensity versus low intensity surveillance for patients who had adenomas removed. It is a model that looked at what happens if a patient with low risk adenomas never comes back for a colonoscopy again. So in the model, the risk steadily increases over the next 30 years. And after 30 years, overall risk of colorectal cancer was around 10%. And it was about 16% for patients with high-risk adenomas if they never came back. So this study shows that based on their model, low-intensity surveillance, meaning every five years for low-risk adenomas, may be reasonable. And that's for low-risk polyps. For high-risk polyps, meaning large adenomas, three years is also reasonable. So at least the modeling data supports the current guidelines for patients who end up having adenomas. I feel like this is still debatable. There's paper coming out on both sides of this debate, whether to have patients with one or two small adenomas come back in five years or 10. Anti-drug antibodies in inflammatory bowel disease are a real problem, and it is estimated that one in 10 patients loses response to anti-TNF medications, even if they had a nice primary response. That's a lot of people losing response. And looking at the IBD research world, we kind of turn a blind eye to this, say, we measure the antibodies, put them on a new drug. But I was glad to see this next paper by Haggai Bar-Yosef and Siegel Pressman from the Israeli IBD Research Nucleus. What a cool name for collaborative, by the way. Anyway, this paper tries to see how we develop anti-drug antibodies. This study was done in mice, so there are limitations. But basically, what they found is that when you keep increasing the anti-TNF drug levels in mice, TNF and infliximab form a complex, as it's supposed to. And at some point, you tip a balance, and you get the amount of infliximab and TNF multimers just right that it leads to formation of the anti-drug antibodies. So concentrations of both drug and target seem to be important. I'm not sure if I see a mechanism here just yet, and maybe I'm not smart enough to understand immunology, but I'm glad that this group is trying to figure out how the heck are these antibodies form in some people and not others. Maybe one day somebody will eventually come up with a strategy where you circumvent the formation of antibodies altogether. Maybe it's a dosing issue. Maybe it's a disease state issue, or maybe you need some other drug to kind of stop this from happening. Who knows? And speaking of new drugs, evidence that biosimilars are um, similar in efficacy and safety for treatment of IBD, I think at this point is overwhelming. This next study looked to see what happened when a patient is started on a biosimilar and then for some reason switched to infliximab or Remicade. Thankfully, this doesn't happen very often, but it does happen. By the way, the title of the paper has the trade name Remicade and not infliximab in it. Why am I annoyed by this? I don't know, but I am. 
Anyway, so what happens when you switch from a biosimilar like Inflectra or CTP13 to Remicade? And why am I interested in this? Well, in our hospital, we made the switch to Inflectra as in patients. So we start patients on Inflectra, but most patients get put on Remicade once they leave the hospital due to many reasons, including insurance. Here, Inflectra was used for maintenance first before the switch. But anyway... And this paper shows that there's no significant difference in proportion of patients in clinical remission at week 8 before the switch at baseline, week 16, or at week 24. Nor was there a difference in anti-drug antibody levels. And they basically compared those who stayed on Remicade the entire duration versus those who were in Flectra initially and then got switched to Remicade. As someone remarked once that Remicade made in 1999 is not the same as Remicade made in 2009 and certainly not the same as the batch made in 2019. There were many changes in the way it was manufactured over the last 20 years, and the drug batch from 2019 is pretty much a biosimilar of the drug that was initially approved in 1999. There is also some speculation that the worry over biosimilars is somewhat fueled by the makers of the original drugs approved for IBD. Not sure how much truth there is in this, but I can see this happening, as it did happen for many other drugs in the past. So believe it or not, but biosimilars are totally okay. Regular listeners are familiar with my rants on the microbiome, and we kind of know that it's altered in every disease state and is being investigated to try to intervene and fix it, hopefully improving the disease. And most studies do a fecal transplant for anything from cancer to a headache. So far, fixing the microbiome in one way or another only works for C. diff. And I had many arguments about the microbiome with Jonathan Pellet from Memorial Sloan Kettering, who studies microbiome in bone marrow transplant patients. And he is a senior author of a paper recently published in Science with Christoph Stein Thuringer, a gastroenterologist from Germany, being the lead author in the study. And the title of the study is Lactose-Driven Enterococcus Expansion to Promote Graft-Versus-Host Disease. So what they did here is they looked at over a thousand bone marrow transplant patients and looked at the stool to see what's going on with the microbiome and if there's any particular shifts that are related to the development of graft versus host disease. They saw that development of GVHD was associated with enrichment of Enterococcus species in the stool. And why does that matter? Well, they did a series of mouse experiments showing that they can limit the expansion of Enterococcus and reduce severity of graft versus host disease mainly by reducing lactose exposure, because Enterococcus likes lactose. Another thing that they found was that bone marrow transplant patients who had a genetic polymorphism that reduces lactase expression, making them lactose intolerant, and that way they had more lactose in their colon. These are the same patients who had more Enterococcus domination in the stool. So lactose can be the cause of the expansion of the Enterococcus species in the stool of these patients. So all of this adds up to a novel intervention to help limit graft-versus-host disease, potentially, and that would be putting a patient on a lactose-free diet. Easy enough, and I hope that it works. And the reason I mentioned this paper is because it meets some of my criteria of what a good microbiome study should be. One, don't start with an intervention, meaning FMT. Don't just jump to fecal transplant and see what sticks. Remember, a few people died from just FMT alone, so it's not the safest thing in the world after all. Come up with an idea of why you think altered microbiome is contributing to actual disease state, and it's not just a surrogate for what's going on. I mean, do some background work. 
the alteration in microbiome mechanistically should lead to a disease or worsening of disease or something with a disease. And then test this intervention that you came up with in the future study, but don't do it backwards. So the intervention should be designed based on your findings. And that is how you get a science paper, my friends. So Burkett or Dennis Parsons Burkett was an interesting man. He was an Irish surgeon who has, by the way, lost an eye when he was 11 years old. And he spent most of his professional life living and working in Uganda. He's famous for two things, Burkitt's lymphoma. What he's lesser known for today is his obsession with dietary fiber. He really believed that fiber is the issue. And in 1969, he published an article titled Related Disease, Related Cause, which became a foundation for what is now known as the Burkitt's Hypothesis. December issue of The Lancet Gastroenterology has an editorial reviving this work and going over the history of Burkitt's hypothesis. It's written by Stephen O'Keefe from Pittsburgh, who pretty much is a kind of a modern-day Burkitt's. So what's the hypothesis? It is the idea that diseases like diabetes, diverticulitis, colon cancer, IBD, and many others found in high-income countries are all related to the fact that the amount of fiber that we eat is much, much less compared to sub-Saharan Africa, where these diseases are uncommon. Anyway, it is a very dense and thorough review of the role of fiber in our diet, talking about butyrate, things like that. And the whole idea here is that increasing fiber to 50 gram per day will increase lifespan, quality of life, and reduce high-income country-associated diseases. And then you can surprise your medical nerd friend at parties, by quizzing them about who Dr. Dennis Burkett was and what exactly is he famous for. I didn't know he was more famous for fiber than for lymphoma, but there you go. There are many things that are being developed these days to try to improve adenoma detection rates. We've got scopes with better cameras, even 360-degree view cameras, and we've got distal attachments, we've got narrowbound imaging, We've got artificial intelligence, hopefully right around the corner. But how do existing devices, tools, and tricks add up and compare to each other? There are no studies, or let's say hardly any studies, comparing these head-to-head. So this network meta-analysis published in CGH combined all of the data for existing randomized trials of different devices that try to improve adenoma detection rates. Table 2 is very informative, and it shows the summary of the number of studies and odds ratios for each one based on intervention, and each are grouped based on add-on devices like caps and the cuffs versus new scopes like fuse versus low-cost optimizing measures like changing position, water-aided, or second observer, basically things that we already have in a room with us. And it is becoming more evident that the best tools in helping you achieve ADR that is higher are not the fancy attachments or fancy scopes, but low-cost resources that we all have. One is very common, second observer. I try to instruct all techs I work with to help me find polyps, and you should too, maybe make it into a game, who finds the polyp first or something like that. Position change could also help just as much as endocuff or using a cap or using water. I think what this meta-analysis tells us, everything kind of works to improve your ADR, and if your ADR is low, you need to do something. We all can do better, and you should track what you're doing when you're doing procedures, insertion time, withdrawal time, need for position change or pressure. I think each endoscopist should try to keep track of these things for themselves. That way you know where there's room for improvement. And on the heel of this meta-analysis, Europeans just gotten out new guidelines for advanced imaging for detection of colon cancer. 
It is an update on the 2014 guidelines. The reason for the update can be summarized in the following paragraph, and I quote, Over the last 15 years, several new techniques to improve polyp detection and characterization have been developed and studied. For all these techniques, the possible financial burden, learning curve, and additional costs need to be balanced against the potential benefit. In general, there is a potential bias in the available literature given that it is impossible to blind the endoscopist to the technique that is being studied, meaning that if you're using endocoff, you know you got endocoff on the endoscope, so you may slow down and get better numbers. Therefore, even the setting of a fully randomized trial, there's always a potential bias in favor of any technique that may affect performance of the endoscopist, even subconsciously. So now let me list the main points for you of this guideline. I feel they apply to everyone, not just Europeans. One, ESG suggests that high-def endoscopy and dye and virtual chromo, as well as add-on devices, can be used in average risk patients to increase endoscopy's adenoma detection rate. However, their routine use must be balanced against cost and practical considerations. Weak recommendation, high-quality evidence. Basically, do your best to increase your ADR and use whatever works for you, but try to keep the cost down. 2. ESG recommends the routine use of high-definition systems in individuals with Lynch syndrome. Strong recommendation, high-quality evidence. I think we talked about this already, where chromoendoscopy with dye was no better, and technically even worse, than just using narrowband imaging to look for lesions in patients with Lynch syndrome. But here we are. So use NBI or dye for Lynch patients. 3. ESG recommends the routine use with targeted biopsies of dye-based pancolonic chromoendoscopy or virtual chromoendoscopy for neoplasia surveillance in patients with long-standing colitis. Strong recommendation, moderate quality of evidence. This one speaks for itself. They basically say use chromo or NBI, but do targeted biopsies instead of random. I think it's going to take a while for everybody to switch over to this idea. 4. ESG suggests that virtual chromoendoscopy and dye-based chromoendoscopy can be used under strictly controlled conditions for real-time optical diagnosis of diminutive, less than 5 mm, colorectal polyps and can replace histopathological diagnosis. The optical diagnosis has to be reported using validated scales, must be adequately photodocumented, and can be performed only by experienced endoscopists who are adequately trained as defined in the ESGE curriculum. Weak recommendation, high quality evidence. This one is not for everyone, and unless someone trained you on how to do this and validated that you're good at this, you probably shouldn't be doing this. 5. ESG recommends the use of high-definition white light endoscopy in combination with virtual chromo to predict the presence and depth of any submucosal invasion in non-pedunculated colorectal polyps prior to any treatment. Strong recommendation, moderate quality of evidence. Another self-evident one, use NBI when looking at polyp bases and surrounding tissue. The sixth recommendation is along the same lines and asks you to inspect the edges of your polypectomy site to make sure you removed everything and look at the scar that you left behind. 7. ESG suggests the possible incorporation of computer-aided diagnosis to colonoscopy if acceptable and reproducible accuracy for colorectal neoplasia is demonstrated in high-quality multicenter in vivo clinical studies. Basically, AI is coming. I, for one, welcome our new AI overlords. And, of course, the worry here is that artificial intelligence 
will teach our new fellows how to find polyps by looking for a box and actually not looking for the polyps. So there's a possibility of de-skilling and the ESG thinks that somebody's gonna hack this and lead to something, who knows? Anyway, weak recommendation, low quality evidence. And I guess that'll be all for December 2019. Thanks again for listening to GI Pearls, the gastroenterology and hepatology literature review podcast. Once again, don't forget to leave a review. We almost got 100 reviews on iTunes, and that really helps. Thanks again. Happy New Year. I'll see you in 2020. Bye-bye.